This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another great episode of Material Is Your Business on Mouth Media Network. We're here recording at Tech's World at the Javits Center in New York City. And I'm very excited about our guest, who happens to be a native New Yorker. And she's here today to talk about the buying and the selling. It's something we all need to do to make our businesses run. And in the changing retail landscape, it means something maybe even more. So we're very excited to have Mercedes Gonzalez, the Director of Global Purchasing Companies. And the show starts right now. Hello, my name is Mercedes Gonzalez, the Director of Global Purchasing. And what I love about materials is always finding a moment of opportunity. From New York City, this is Material Is Your Business, a podcast covering the science, technology, and business of materials and manufacturing. Your hosts for this episode are Samantha Cortez, international consultant and founder of Samantha's Platform, Stephanie Benedetto, CEO and co-founder of Queen of Raw, and Rob Sanchez, business strategist and COO of Open Source Business. And now... Here are your hosts. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stephanie Benedetto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Cortez. Hola. And Rob Sanchez. Hey, y'all. And we're excited to be here at TexWorld speaking to Mercedes Gonzalez, the Director of Global Purchasing Companies. Hi, Mercedes. Hi. How are you? We're good, thanks. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So Global Purchasing Companies, a powerful name and a powerful statement. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your background and what you do? Well, I like to call myself the accidental garmento. Um, I went to school, business school, to study to be an economist. I wanted to buy and sell foreign currencies. And when I graduated school, the stock market crashed. It was that big Black Friday. No, sorry, Black Monday when people were jumping out of windows and I wasn't going to get a job on Wall Street. So I ended up working for my uncle, who was a manufacturer based here in New York City. And he basically made one thing. He made old lady polyester dresses. And he um, started here in the city, and he um, built his business up, and we also had a factory in Florida. And, uh, you know, since I was a college graduate and knew it all, I decided that I wanted to take production overseas. So that was really my big forte into production and understanding that side of the business before I became a buyer. And as a buyer, who have you worked with and what do you do? Well, I had, my forte in buying is actually an international business. And, uh, and again, it's, it's all about these moments of opportunity that have appeared in my life. And uh, I remember working for my uncle. Our biggest client at the time was Walmart. And let's face it, selling old lady polyester dresses to Walmart is not exactly glamorous <laughs> and fun. It might be really lucrative, and it is a very good business, but I had it pictured since now I'm certain I was going to stay in the garment industry that I wanted a more glamorous lifestyle. So as a buyer, I thought I was going to be flying on the Concorde to Paris and going to fashion shows, and I was going to, you know, hobnob with all the beautiful celebrities. You and mean that's not what happens? Absolutely not. My first job as a buyer for a buying office that was called Frederick Atkins, I was in charge of knit tops up to $10. So there wasn't a tank top, halter top, T-shirt in the market that I didn't know about. And I took my job really seriously. 
where did it go from there? Obviously, you're not still doing uh, just that. <laughs> yeah, just knit tops. No, fortunately, you know, it, it's really funny. And again, it's, uh, it's about jumping on opportunities and, you know, just taking that big bite of the apple. Um, Mr. Atkins came in one day to the office, and, and I had already a, a good reputation of being a good negotiator since I had been working with factories, and, and I knew the supply chain from the factory level up. So that made me a really good buyer, actually, as far as being a good negotiator and being able to source the things that I needed. Um, Mr. Atkins came in one day and said, who can speak Spanish? And I raised my hand, and all of a sudden I was in charge of International because they had a Mexican uh, department store that was a member. And now it goes up, presumably, beyond just that as well. I mean, truly a global network in today's retailscape. Yeah, and it's really funny because now, you know, the, our company in August will be 19 years old. Congratulations. And thank you. And we, um, you know, we really started as retailers uh, helping um, international brands or department stores match the sensibilities of American department stores. And, and that's really a lot of fun because it's really like, you know, like, do you know the saying, um, the, what is it, the, the man with one eye is king in the land of the blind? That's yeah. me. You know, you walk into these, like, retail situations, and I'll give you a perfect example. Um, one of my first independent clients was a mall developer in Siberia. And uh, he understood the fact that he wanted to protect all the independent retailers in his shopping mall. Even though Siberia is now the third largest uh, city in uh, Russia, and he already saw, like, there was an Ikea that moved in, a Zara that moved in, an H&M that moved in, and it was really crushing the local retailers. So he had us come in and kind of do a, um, an overview of what was going on with the retail situation and how we could train them and educate them in order to be more competitive with these international brands. So then this is where, you know, just sensibility. One of the shoe companies, it was literally taking, like, an hour for you to, like, get your shoe, try it on. It didn't fit. You had to go get another shoe because the, the system that they had for replenishment was inefficient and most importantly it was a really inexpensive shoe store so I came up really ready for the brilliant idea of stack and rack so I just totally took that from Payless where they stack up all the shoes up and you self-serve the size that you want you try it on and you walk out the shoe so they were able to increase their business like 300% over just a little bit of merchandising in the store so that's really what we started to do as retailers but over the years and this is where it just got really, really crazy, especially around 2009, um, when the economy, again, took a little bit of a hiccup. We had a big problem with online sales and people showrooming in the retail situations where they would come in, try something on, and then go on Amazon and buy cheaper. So one of the strategies that we came up with is they had to start buying from independent brands, new brands, emerging designers, international designers that maybe don't have a lot of presence in the United States, where you couldn't go online and look for it cheaper, faster, and ship to you for free. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So what happens when you give that kind of advice is then the buyers come back to us and they really are angry because a lot of these emerging designers are a hot mess. You know, they don't know their supply chain. They don't know how to negotiate with a factory. They're cutting and sewing the stuff themselves. And I actually asked the people at Magic um, if we could do a, a little presentation on what a buyer wants. And it was like a 45 minute presentation and like two minutes into the workshop when I looked around and I saw all these googly eyes, I knew that this was probably part of the business that we wanted to grow into too. That's where the opportunity always meets 
timing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you started off, like really concentrating on uh, new new clients and uh, new people that are in, coming into the industry. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you're doing with them now? So we so it, it starts off. Everybody has a great dream, right? So I've been called the dream crusher, but I prefer to call myself the nightmare avoider. And it's a big difference, right? I'd rather crush your dream than, like, becomes a horrible nightmare. And we have run in with brands. Like, we're working with a Brazilian shoe designer right now that has 100,000 pairs of shoes that she pre-bought without even making her first sale because she thought it was a good idea to go online. So now we have to figure out how we're going to liquidate all of that. So I'd rather you come to me when you're just thinking about your idea because and we call this the feasibility consultation because we could shut it down like before it becomes a problem. Like, no, um, dresses with bibs built in because you like to wash your neck in the middle of the day is probably not a good idea. Leisure suits with cat prints all over them because it's for the cat lady is probably not a good idea. Like we come up with, I mean, it, they might sound funny, but these people really come open heartedly with this is a need. This is who I am. And I feel like there's other people out there and there might be, but we don't teach people to run hobbies. We try to teach people to run businesses. And that's the difference. It has to be a concept that's scalable. And then from there, we do like a short program, emerging designer program, where we kind of hold your hand and it's unlimited consultations. But every little question that comes up, we kind of help you with it. Um, And then we even have like a program where we actually do the sourcing for you. But we take very few clients on at that level. Um, because it's so intensive, but the ones that we usually get to that level, we're also vested in them too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious when you, I know you've worked with some major brands and Harvey Nichols and Dillard's, and when you're making those kinds of buying decisions, what are the factors or thoughts that are going into your head and how much a part of that do materials actually play into it of the price point and what the fibers and are of the fabrics of the goods that they're looking to buy? So that's really interesting because, and this is what I feel is one of the multitude of problems affecting our industry today that the buyers are not buyers, they're accountants. Mm -hmm. And basically what they're doing is buying on numbers. They sold X number of dollars for X number of weeks and it turned over this amount of money. We got to do that again and replicate it. And retail, and with this big shakeup that's going on in retail, you know what my biggest question is? Why hasn't it happened sooner? Why didn't it happen like 10 years ago? 10 years ago, we were talking about sameness. We were talking about mass production. We were talking about um, product development that has just, just gone out of control, where the big brands like the department stores have gone directly to the factories, and now they think that they're fashion designers too. And everything has lost its je ne sais quoi. It's been so boring. So there's actually nothing for the consumer to buy. And then when they talk about, and I just love it when the department stores and the national chains are complaining, like people are cheap. They don't want to pay their use because you've trained them to buy on sale. Right. That's what mm-hmm. you've done. And, and people can, I just want to just talk about that a little bit. People will pay for what they want. And I call it the avocado effect. You know when you go to the deli and you buy a sandwich and they're like, it's $5 for the sandwich. And you're like, oh, can I have a slice of avocado? And they're like, yeah, it's two bucks more. You just pay 30% more for your sandwich, but you'll pay it because you want it. So if things are limited, if they're exclusive, if they have a good story, if they're well-crafted, if it's not a cookie-cutter situation, we're finding that the consumer is paying for it. 
And it's something we talk about a lot here also is, is that educational aspect, and especially when you're talking about the material level and people now starting to even consider paying a premium for something that's either innovative or sustainable in the fiber and there's something unique to it. It adds to that. You know, I just love that you use the word sustainable because I have asked every person I have ever met what the word sustainable means to them, and it means something different. 100%. You know, like people for a long time, they were saying that bamboo was sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. Remember when it was like a big kick about that? But then when we learn about all the chemical processes that are involved yeah. in processing. Exactly the same as petroleum based. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then let's talk about cotton for a second. Why isn't cotton recognized as a luxury fiber? Why is it that I could go to Walmart and buy a pair of jeans that has how many gram weights of cotton in it for $9, but then I go to Victoria's Secret and buy a cotton panty for $20? Like, how does that work out? And I feel like some countries like Peru have put a premium on their, on their Peruvian cotton, right, and their Pima cotton. And I feel like even Egyptian cotton still has, like, a perception of higher value. But cotton in itself, you know what makes me really excited when it comes to textiles are the super synthetics, the ones that are actually grown in a lab, the ones that um, are not petrol-based, that, you know, will protect us from the sun, that have small carbon footprints, that, you know, wash in the machine with little bits of water and air dry quickly. Like, those are the ones that I really am excited about. And I really think that the future of, of fashion is going to be dependent on some of these new technologies. There's... Um, something just came to mind as you were talking about that. I was talking with a cotton farmer, and he was at, in, based in Texas. He was saying that um, because of global warming, the actual environmental shift in his farm made a short staple cotton actually produce a fiber as long as a long staple. Wow. So there's very interesting shifts happening right now globally in, in the fiber supply market anyways. And there's not always a way to talk about or capitalize on them. So you could actually get the same performance at a different price point. Um, just by knowing that, okay, there's a geographical shift or there's a, a change in the market. So there's a lot of interesting things happening on the actual growth side and then also on the actual understanding of the fibers themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that education level and that perception, I feel, is really important, too, that people understand it. A lot more to talk about on that subject. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back soon on Material Is Your Business. Hi, I'm Charles Beckwith. We appreciate you downloading this program every week, and I want to invite you to also listen to our other show, which I host, American Fashion Podcast, the number one fashion industry podcast. If you want to deep dive into what really makes the fashion industry work behind the scenes, listen to the show that Harper's Bazaar called for the true fashion nerd, American Fashion Podcast, every week on iTunes, Stitcher, and at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. And hear all of our episodes on materialisyourbusiness.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. Welcome back to Material Is Your Business. We're here with Mercedes Gonzalez, the Director of Global Purchasing Companies. And we were just talking before break about some of the new innovations in fibers and especially around sustainability and what that word means. And it's near and dear to my heart. And I understand we may have conflicting opinions about it. So what does it mean to you and why is there a certain reaction you're having to the word? 
Well, it's not just the word sustainable. It's also ethical, fair trade, like all of those fun words that people, you know, they they believe that um, by adding that words or those words to the conversation makes their product more valuable. But when you really drill down and ask them, what does that actually mean? They can't give me an answer either. So when people talk about, let's just talk about fair wages, right? When they say, and I, I had this conversation recently with somebody that was manufacturing in Bangladesh. And she was really excited because she was paying three times the average wage in Bangladesh. So she's paying, what, 30 cents? Right. That's my point. So she was patting herself on the back that she was being so fairly trading and she was paying more than the average. But you're still paying 30 cents an hour for the work that you're getting. And this was a top-end designer on the high-level high contemporary price point, $900 for a dress, when your cost of the actual goods cut so labor was maybe around eight bucks. Absolutely. And I can understand and appreciate kind of the vision of where we want to go. But at the same time, is that not beginning a step in a right direction and still keeping employment and work in Bangladesh without everybody leaving as an alternative? I do agree 100% with you, but then don't say that you're an ethically fair traded company. So what does that word mean for you? What is your standard or criteria that they would have to ascribe to? My standard would be a living wage, which would mean that they could afford education for their children and food on the table every day. It's a very human basic need. And I feel like in that should really be the minimal standard. And I'm going back to like everybody's complaining, like the race to the bottom, nobody wins. Nobody wins that price war. So I want to be the top one. I want to be the best. I want to be the Haggadash ice cream of whatever product category I'm doing. So what's, what's interesting for me is... Um my dad's a fish biologist for the Forest Service. And one of the things that always struck me was that um, they would spend millions of dollars putting structures into the streams, like logs and things like that, helicoptering them in and dropping them in so that there was salmon habitat. And then a Boy Scout troop would come by and they would clean the river and they would pull the logs out and they'd build a campfire with them and then they'd leave trash on the ground and they'd leave and they just saved the river, right? And I think that there's a lot of this happening in sustainability and in ethics where there's no understanding of what's actually going on. So you don't actually know if the effect you have is positive or negative. And, but you pat yourself on the back because you did a good thing. So I'm wondering with what you were saying is like, how, how do you shift that consciousness around it so that it's not just, okay, well, I checked the box, but it's, I actually made a difference in somebody's life. Well, you know, that's exactly what the whole point is, is that everybody talks about transparency and everybody talks about the different levels of sustainability or um, social consciousness when we're working. Um, and sometimes it becomes really overwhelming. So now let's go to my other favorite subject, child labor. Like I am an advocate of child labor, especially in some countries in, in Central America. I mean, you know this. In Central America, a lot of girls don't get to go to school after the age of 10. They become a burden on their family, you know. Um, because they're, they're supposedly too young to be married off. They can't come into the factory because these American observers have come in and they don't want to see children in the factory. So what do they do? They're out in the street all day by themselves. And this is where sexual predators come in. This is where sex trafficking comes in. This is where kidnappings come in. And this is where child marriages come in. We have I these problems. I disagree with that. You disagree? I disagree, absolutely. I like to hear it. I disagree. Um, going into one of the factories when I was in the manufacturing aspect of, of, of doing production and sitting in that room where this 300-pound guy was hitting on me 
when I was, and then going into that factory when I saw all these 12 years old working there, that gave me so much shivers that that's why I like my, my insistence on making sure that things get manufactured back in the U.S. It's one of my main points because I'm, if you have a predator no, no, no. there and you're trying to, I'm just going to, okay, so I'm going to take, I'm going to take it to your point. So there is a predator in the factory. There is a predator in the factory. There is a dozen predators out in the street. They're there with their aunt, with their mother, with their grandmother working in the same factory. They're even in some of the, and this is where, so now you can't like, so we talk about, um, you know, all of these different uh, uh, checks and all these companies that come into compliances, right? When you go to do these compliances, like a lot of it is smoke and mirrors, and a lot of them are the like when you go to buy a condo and they show you the model apartment, it's the model factory. Like you can't be in control of what gets subcontracted to somebody else, right? So what I have found, the way that I can sleep at night, especially when I'm working with developing countries, is I like to work with micro factories. And micro factories tend to be family owned. And when you're family owned, that's when you're going to see the kids in the factory because that's their daycare, that's their education, and that's for most part is the company of their own family. So as a buyer, whose obligation or obligations does this become? Is this obligation of a Harvey Nichols and a Dillard's to do their research and their homework and not to buy from companies that may or may not meet certain standards? Is this the job of, you know, of due diligence and search? Is it about storytelling and understanding where things come from? And, and how do we fix this? It's a little bit of everything, but I'm just going to be really frankly honest with you. If people want to abuse the system, they will, and they will cover it up, and they're really good at covering up, and you will never know. So, again, like when we go back to like the story in Bangladesh, right, where the building fell down and they were blaming H&M for making cheap clothes there, they could have been canning tuna fish in that factory building, right, and it still would have collapsed. It had nothing to do with the textile industry or the apparel industry. It has to do with the corruption of a country. Right. And the standards in general of life. And that's the thing. Like, and that's where why are we manufacturing so much abroad and giving our hands, giving our, our, our jobs to the people in the exterior just because we want a $20 shirt? No, but see, <laughs> that, you missed the point. Uh-huh. My point was that I don't want to pay $3 for something I'm selling for $300. I want to pay a living standard wage. Yeah. So that means already I'm increasing one more person's livelihood. And let's just take the the example of China, right? In two generations, they have educated enough children where there's not enough factory workers. That's what I want to see. I don't live in a small, isolated world. I live in a global environment. And if I could help other countries develop and grow, then I'm doing the consciousness of the world. And it has to be, it's like the three Ps, right? It's people, planet, profit. And I'm a for-profit business, and I will teach you how to be a for-profit business. You don't have to be a non-for-profit, you know, Birkenstock, granola-eating kale person to, like, tree-hug and say, I'm going to save the world. It's not all about that. I'm such a capitalist, and we could all be capitalists, and we could all learn from that. That's what it's all about. We're chasing the money. I'm not chasing the dollars and cents. I'm chasing the big picture. Well, I appreciate that. And just to be clear, my business is for profit, but with a very clear social mission. So I am understand exactly what you're saying. And I wonder, as you kind of look at this, what what you seem to be saying uh, on the negative side, actually, it's more positive that together we can change the world. And if you look at where we are now and where we're going, um, based on your industry experience, what are the biggest things in the short term and the long term future that you would want to see buyers change or people who are producing change um, from the retail perspective. You know what I would like buyers to know what costing really is all about. 
I don't want buyers to just be buying by numbers. I want them to understand the value of the stuff that they're doing. When somebody says that this is a hand crocheted or hand embroidered or that they're like, wow, that shouldn't cost $20. I was just in India, right? And uh, you can see the picture on Instagram. This man spent five months hand stitching this piece of fabric, like a shawl, and he wanted $130 for it. Five months worth of work for $130. How is that even fair? So would you argue for a global standardization of you pricing? Can't do it. Right. You can't do it. That's a pipe dream. So what? so I do it one factory at a time, one person at a time, one garment at a time. And the retailers that we work with, those are the things that they value. And the people that they sell to, those are the people that value it too. It's not for everybody. There's always going to be the guy, the $2 t-shirt guy. That's not my guy. And that's the guy that's actually, you know, has this mess that's going on with retail. I'm... I'm the other guy. So how does that translate into the consumer market? Like what's, what's the inside of that? Is, is there a re-education process that has to happen? I think it's, so going back to the buyer, right? It's not only educating the buyer on costing and like what things are really valuable, but how they communicate that with their customers too. You know, I happen to own a discount store. You can't get more bottom of the barrel than that, right? But in my discount store, I also carry dresses, handmade dresses from Guatemala. I carry hand-beaded jewelry from El Salvador. I carry Indian, um, African print dresses that I just received. But every single one of those factories, every single one of those artisanal person, I personally went to, and whatever they asked me to pay for that dress, that's what I paid. I didn't nickel and dime them. I didn't try to negotiate with them. I didn't tell them I'm going to buy more. I'm like, $15? Yep, that's fair because I'm going to triple the price and sell it in my store. And that, so I started a new hashtag. It's called hand to hanger. Like farm to table, but hand to hanger. So I differently took it from your hang and put it on my hanger. That's some pretty great returns, though. From yes, it is. Fifteen dollars and times three times. So, yeah, it is. well, if <laughs> so, maybe are there opportunities there too? And I don't know if this is already what you're doing or what you're encouraging the retail and buying space to do to be giving back to those communities and those micro communities, supporting the people with some of the profits. We donate a portion of our proceeds. My business is very similar. No, nope. we donate a portion back. No, no. Nope. Why not? No, nope. because my donation is helping them. So. When we work with these people, it, it, I'm not about a charity. I'm really not. I'm not about giving 10% or whatever. You know what my thing is? I pay a fair price for it. And you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to say, and you know what? I paid 15, but I would have I would have paid 20. And here's a list of people that I know that will probably tw pay 22. And this is, that you know, and the business. way that you're like, hey, you know what? You shouldn't be doing all the embroidering yourself. You should split it up with somebody else or subcontract it to somebody else. And this is that. Other, that little bit of education that you can share and that next step that you could do, that's how you see the process and that's how things grow. By some weird chance, I end up working with this orphanage in Colombia, right? And it's an orphanage for boys and they get put in this orphanage at the age of nine. So from nine to 18, they're in this orphanage. You know that they're never going to get adopted and they know that they're never going to get adopted. So the orphanage is really good about teaching them a vocation from they're really young. So I had um, asked them to make me these little bracelets that they wear, and it's kind of like a little cross or whatever. And I was willing to pay a quarter for them because that's what I could buy them at the market for, for a quarter, right? So these ladies from town, they came, they showed them how to make the little uh, bracelets, and they were very successful. But working in an orphanage because it's child labor, they're only allowed to work three hours a day, right? So then that's part of the vocational training and not like a factory, right? And 
my production capacities were more than the three hours that they could make. So on their own, they started to subcontract the ladies that showed them how to make the bracelets, and they were getting a dime for them and still selling me for a quarter. And now all of a sudden, they're like, hold on a second, sister. I don't have to work, and I could actually outsource it to these ladies to make it at home. And now they're managing the production, right? So now, fast forward, I've been buying thousands of bracelets for them for like a year, right? They had formed a board, and they sat me down at the board, and they're like, hey, you know what, Mercedes? Thanks a lot for all your help, but we have this missionary from Italy that's paying us a dollar for these bracelets. <laughs> so um, either you pay up a dollar or we're going to cut you off. So I'm like, well, you know what, you little rats? <laughs> Beauty of I'm going to make them in China now. So, but my point is that they were able to learn and scale and outsource. And, and I'll give you like a really nice story about them. They, that orphanage makes enough money that they can actually fly from Medellin to uh, uh, Bogota, that's their big thing, to watch soccer games. That's nice. And a beautiful story and powerful message. So obviously we're here at Tech's World and you're here. What does it mean to you and your business to be here and telling your story and who are you trying to reach? Well, we had a Fashion 101 class um, this morning, which is like a crash course. Like it's usually like an eight-hour course that we do in 45 minutes. So that's always like a really crazy ride. But one of the things that I'm here for too is like I was here to see my Egyptian friends that are here that also do amazing work and it's really underrated. Um, some of our African factories are here too and we came to touch base with them and see what's going on um, with them but it's also to look for new techniques and new fibers and new resources and new technologies like the lensing people now have that that black um, story that they're doing and working with that's really exciting so you know we're always looking for something new and something novel something that we could put our finger on and really exploit it let's pause right there and we'll be back with our fun final segment right after this Hi, everyone. This is Mark Rico. I'm one of the hosts of Fashion Is Your Business, another great show on Mouth Media Network. If you like the podcast you're listening to, Material Is Your Business, then I bet you're going to love Fashion Is Your Business, which intersects fashion, technology, and innovation, and also American Fashion Podcast, which Harper's Bazaar calls for the true fashion nerd at heart. Both shows and a whole bunch of other great podcasts are all available at MouthMediaNetwork.com. And when you do listen, let us know you heard about them on Material Is Your Business. Thanks a lot. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Material Is Your Business. We're here with Mercedes Gonzalez, the Director of Global Purchasing Companies here at TexWorld in the Javits Center in New York. And it's time for our favorite last segment. And now, it's Remnants. Remnants, where we get to ask some fun personal questions that maybe we didn't get to in the show. And who wants to go first? Samantha. I know that your background is Cuban, and I would like to understand what is your vision of what's um, going on right now in Cuba, and how do you feel about it? Oh, boy. If I gave my honest opinion, I'll never be allowed to go to Miami again. But having said that, it's really interesting because... Uh, I was recently in Cuba, actually, right? So I was born and raised in New York City. My parents came in the 50s. So I don't have that background of, like, 
being a fleeing refugee or leaving everything behind. Like my parents came way before Castro. Um, but going back to Cuba and understanding how it works there, and, and I, I know this is not a popular statement, but I want you to hear me out completely. Communism works in Cuba. Everybody eats, everybody goes to school, everybody has health care, everybody has an education. It's that hard to, to me, agree with that. Yeah, My uncle well, is still in Cuba. <laughs> okay, but hear me out. They have all of those things. The only problem with all of those things is it's done in such a poverty level. If it was done more in a middle class level or it was done in a higher level. And then the other part of communist or socialist society, there's no room really for the individual. It's all about the people. So I'll give you like a, a funny story. Do you know that there are no orphans in Cuba? That every child that's orphaned is assigned to a family? Yes. And then their um, medical system is very good. Except there's no medicine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's Which we the, have a hand in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, to be honest with you, if we talk about the, the trade embargo and everything else, they trade with every other country in the world. So that's where the, the absolute corruption of communism comes into play because they keep blaming the Americans when we're <laughs> insignificant in the global prospect of all the trade that they actually do do. Okay, but taking it then away from Cuba for a minute and back to New York, uh, where I know you, you spend a lot of your time, why is it important to you and your vision personally and professionally to be here in New York? This is it. This is the capital of all fashion. This is the capital of the world. And I think that I'm very jaded since I'm born and raised here. Do you know I even went to school here? I didn't leave the island of Manhattan until I was in my 20s. Like, seriously, I'm an island girl. But um, it's... This is it. This is the focus. And to quote Frank Sinatra, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. You think that's still true today Absolutely. as much and will be? Absolutely. So I'm wondering, um, what was childhood like? So how did you get to school? How did how'd you grow up? And what do you remember from back then? So I grew up in New York City in the 70s, when a lot of people like to... a safe haven of fuzziness. Sure. And, yes, know. yes. <laughs> and... Uh, um, 99th and West End, which, you know, we used to call Riverside Park, uh, Needle Park because yeah. of all the heroin junkies, you know, when people I just this, dove off the pier at 99th street and swam down the Hudson. Yeah. So. Did you really? Yeah. That would have been, you would have been disintegrated back in the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it's funny because even like one of my pet peeves are when people talk about like these young kids that are killing themselves over cyber bullies, I'm like, I had to fight the Puerto Rican girls every day to get to school. Like, you want to talk about bullies, I could tell you bully stories, right? But I feel that that toughness and that edginess of the city also is part of what makes me the business person that I am today. And I really feel, and it's funny because I always talk about, like, the four traits I always got sent to the principal's office are all the traits that work in my benefit now. Like, I was always being uh, accused to being too bossy. Can you imagine that that was, like, a thing written on my report card? <laughs> or doesn't play well with others, right? I'm like, yeah, because I'm the boss. That's why, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or, you know, um, doesn't like to share. Oh, my God, that was always a problem with me, like, not sharing or whatever. And, uh, and then my favorite one, which is how mostly I make a living, is talks too much in class. <laughs> I can appreciate that. And then when that would happen to me, my mother would go in and talk to the teachers and say, well, maybe this isn't the right school for my child if you don't want to nurture who she is as an individual. So, you know, obviously you had the support, too, to be who oh, you are. Oh, no, you're wrong. Like, you know what Cuban parents are <laughs> oh, like. The teachers said it was like the <laughs> rule, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And if not, they will <laughs> nag you to death. <laughs> That's right. That's right. 
Cállate, chica, right? <laughs> Can you give us maybe a final thought, a personal message, anything you want to live, leave our listeners with uh, as you reflect on your experiences? You know what? There is, yes, and thank you for this opportunity because there is way too much chicken little going on right now in the industry. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, you know, the death of the department store, the death of the mall, the death of the brand, and it's not true. We, there's always, every single decade, I mean, as long as I can remember, you, you know, it used to be that the department stores were killing, the malls were killing the department stores, and the department stores were killing the, the, the boutiques, the bo internet killed everybody else in its way. There's always some kind of drama. But in this drama, there's always a moment of opportunity. And I feel like right now with the technology, the accessibility, the global privilege that we have of communication, it is such a great time to be a retailer and to be a new brand. That's great. Can, how can our listeners connect with you and your business? How can they reach you? Well, they could reach me directly. Um, old school telephone. It's 212-414-4001. Uh, they could email me directly at Mercedes at globalpurchasinggroup.com. And it would be really fun if everybody would just follow me on uh, uh, Instagram. And it's uh, at Mercedes GPC. Great. Thank you so much, Mercedes, it's for joining my us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. For Samantha Cortez. Adios. And for Rob Sanchez. Good night, y'all. I'm Stephanie Benedetto. Go change the world, everyone. Thanks for listening. Be back soon on Material Is Your Business. This has been Material Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at materialisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, materialisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. <laughs>